Hello and welcome to Resonant Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Aaron Corte and I'm the news editor at Resonant Advisor. Prince Thomas, real name Thomas Hermanson, started DJing when he was 10 years old. At his local record shop, he met DJ Strangefruit, who would go on to become one of Norway's most influential selectors. A move to Oslo embedded Thomas in the city's thriving 90s club scene, and it's here where he met Hans-Peter Lindström. Together, the pair helped to find a generation of contemporary cosmic disco, putting out three albums between 2005 and 2009. In more recent times, he's focused on his solo productions, putting out three albums since 2010. His most recent LP arrived this year amid a flurry of activity for Thomas. He also celebrated 10 years of his full pup imprint, started a new techno-focused sub-label and compiled the first edition in a new mix series from Japan's Rainbow Disco Club Festival. All this and more was up for discussion when Thomas stopped by our London office recently. I grew up in many different small towns in Norway. I was born in Moss, which is a, it's a coastal town close to Sweden, and um, it's also it's also where the sex tags guys come from. And that's where I was born and lived the first few years. Then I moved to uh, Gaustad near the Olympic town of Lillehammer and I ended up in Hamar when I was four years old I think. That's where I lived until I was 20 before moving to Oslo. And in those early days what was your exposure to music like? Well my first exposure to music that I can remember is um, I think my father either from four track tape or cassette tape playing Buddy Miles and Carlos Santana live, some, some live recording of them. But the first memory I have of actually remembering hearing music and remembering what it was and kind of becoming a fan was probably ABBA or KISS, you know. It's one of those two when I was, yeah, five or six, I think. It wasn't really too long after that when you started buying records, though, was it? You, you started buying records when you were you were about ten years old. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it was the, the first first record I ever got that was my own was for my seventh birthday, and it was the the Red Album by by the Beatles. From the first day, I think you know, I started saving up money and buying stuff. But the real addiction didn't start until I was nine or ten, when I kind of started getting this idea about playing records on two turntables and kind of like looking for the kind of music that that I could do this with, which was obviously not Beatles, even though I, I've played that in in nightclubs too. But the kind of electronic thing, or you know, even the four four thing came. Yeah, when I was 
nine or ten, yeah. And was it a case of using your, your pocket money to go down to the record shop and buy some stuff? And were you getting recommendations or how did, how did it work? At the time, I was buying music magazines. And my, my stepfather, who I lived with from when I was six, to New Musical Express, and, which was actually a good thing those days. And, it, you know, it's the first place where I read about Acid House and you had little charts. This was back in the time when, when Charles Peterson and Pete Tong were basically playing the same kind of records. Uh, and they would recommend stuff in the last pages. Um, but, yeah, it was through magazines. Uh, it was, you know, the Beat Street movie came and there was documentaries about hip-hop culture, graffiti, all this exciting stuff. And... Um, um, you had Blues and Soul magazine, which was a, a monthly magazine that came out. And you would read about all these producers and records, you know, like Mantronics and D-Train. And, uh, you know, yeah, I, I had no idea. I, you know, I was basically looking at the cool names and, you know, learning producers' names and seeing recommendations from people. And then writing little lists of stuff that I thought I needed or, you know. We, we had uh, one national TV channel at the time, one national radio channel. And there wasn't much of this, you know, there, there weren't any programs specializing in this sort of music. But we did have kind of our own John Peel occasionally playing something that, you know, sounded, you know, like I heard Suicide and I was like, this is actually quite similar to this... Mantronic stuff or, you know, uh, kind of shaping my own ideas about what this music was. And later on, there was an import store opening in my town where you could get some of these records. And my, you know, my stepfather used to bring my lists to, when he went to Oslo, used to drop by the import store there and, you know, occasionally pick up something like a, a cool 7-inch or album 12-inch. So, Yeah. And you were you were practicing DJing at this point with two turntables and a mixer? No mixer. <laughs> there was a, a book called Subway Art by Henry Chalfant and Martha Cooper, which I received as a gift from I think my grandfather or something. I think it's in some way related to to the movie Wild Style. Either it's, you know, it's from the same period, it contains a lot of the same pieces and a lot of the same people. And there was also a documentary that was shown on TV, which seemed like some connected to this book in some sort of way. And for the first time I saw somebody, you know, scratching and, you know, basically doing very basic uh, quick mixing between two records. And... I already had a turntable in in a in a rack, you know, like it's it's a combined you know amp tape player radio with a turntable on top. And my mother and stepfather had one too in their bedroom on a tray with wheels. So I would wheel this out to my room and you know had two sets of speakers and two amps and and kind of work out how I could make cue marks on the records. You know, you spin it around, and at that point where 
the first sound comes in, you'll stop the record, take a ruler and draw a little line or a, you know, arrow pointing towards it or little stickers or, you know, I would basically learn to beat mix without pitch controls, without headphones, but with two volume knobs. So that's how I learned the basics. And then I would, you know, record stuff by putting a, a tape player with a microphone in the same room and tell people to be quiet. <laughs> and also doing, you know, like cassette tape edits where not with racers, but basically pause buttons, you know. You would record a certain section, stop it at the exact point, rewind the record, record the same section over again. Yeah, I even remember sending these tapes to, sending it later to national radio for their program Friday Night Disco and they would air my mixes. So they got played on on the radio? Yeah, they got played on national radio, actually. <laughs> and at what age was, was this when you were submitting those? I guess 10. And right after that, I met my, my early mentor, DJ Strange Fruit, which was a few years older. He had proper equipment. You know, he, for his confirmation, he had received money enough to buy two turntables, like Technique's turntables and a, and a simple mixer. I mean, all the other guys in the, in the record store where I hung out were like really mean and cruel. And, you know, I, I was the annoying kid hanging out, had never had any money, putting aside loads of records, never able to afford any of them, you know. But he was, he was really cool and, you know, came up to me and so you're, you're actually really interested in this. You know, if you want to, you can come by my place and I'll show you how to do it. And it did, you know, I, I kept on doing this thing in my bedroom and buying these records up until 91, 92, I think. At the same time, I, I, I discovered girls <laughs> and I, on the side, I was also playing instruments, uh, you know, trying to learn how to play the cello, trying to learn how to play the guitar. Some friends of mine started a punk band and asked me if I wanted to play the bass, which I had actually had two two-hour courses in, in the basics of playing bass guitar before. So, yeah, I joined them on bass. And we got pretty successful quickly. We won, like, this national contest thing and kind of became local heroes. So this kind of took over all my all the friends I had who were into breaking, graffiti, all this stuff, they kind of fell off and it was pretty lonely for a while. So I still had his records, and but my, my interest was somewhere else for a couple of years. And what kind of music was were you playing in the band? I've always been into all sorts of music. Like at home, we there, there would be classical music, jazz. You know, my, my stepfather had all these like Cramps and Iggy records and, and, you know, David Bowie, Clash, Sapa, like, yeah, everything. So to me, I, I mean, I, I played in quite a few different bands, you know, one 
playing psychedelic pop music. Uh, you know, I've I even played drums in some some bands who, you know, it wasn't necessarily my cup of tea what, what all these bands played, but I was just happy filling my time doing something that had to do with music. You know, I, I would even jump in on... That's a bit later, though, but they had this, like, Tuesday jams at the local blues club, and I would go there and play the fucking blues. <laughs> because, it, yeah, it was all music, and from early on, I, I convinced myself this is what I have to do, you know. And did the, the idea of juggling, DJing and playing in a band not appeal to you at the time? Were they two kind of mutually exclusive things? No, they both had to do with music and um, I think at that point all this like playing in bands and, and, and actually making something appealed more to me and I um, there was like this little period where I didn't find anything that interested me of electronic music. I remember buying house records in 86, 87 that to me I didn't know well, I, I knew it was something else, but I didn't know about house music per se. For me, it was more like these are different kinds of hip hop records or, you know, they're just a bit faster. The beat is a little bit different, but it was hip hop music that that was my first love in electronic music. And all this other stuff just was was added on top. But then at some point I didn't really find any rap records that I thought were good or, you know, this is about in, yeah, 91, 92. There's like this little black hole in my collection for two years where I have no idea what, well, I, now I know what happened in that period, but it didn't excite me at the time. Instead, I went through my, yeah, my stepfather's collection, buying tons of records at flea markets and just discovering, trying to, to fill all these holes. And then some friends of mine started one of the first house clubs in Norway in, in 1993. And they knew I had a, had a big record collection and they knew I had been DJing a little before. So they, they asked me if I wanted to become the, the weekly resident and if I wanted to be a bartender there as well. So I was kind of like serving beers and playing music uh, there, yeah, from, from 93, which is kind of when my DJ career started. Uh, so that was the moment when you, you reconnected with electronic music? Yeah, I reconnected with electronic music, but first of all, I was, you know, I, when I was looking for exciting stuff that was new to me, you know, old records at that time, I would accidentally buy a lot of disco things, you know, like buying Saron records because they looked horrible. And then listening to them and they were amazing. You know, I was like super nature. Wow, that's, you know, that I could play that alongside this Miles Davis track or Acid Tracks by Future or, you know. So I had this idea of how I could piece it all together. And how did you go about piecing it all together, playing such a, a broad range of music? Well, I mean, in the beginning I was playing on weeknights and basically serving beer and playing records. So I wouldn't worry that much about the mixing. I would just play tracks that I liked. 
which I, I think is more DJing than actual beat mixing, you know. But then um, I would reconnect with DJ Strange Fruit, who at the time was, uh, you know, one of the, you know, leading lights of the house techno scene and the whole uh, thing going off in in Oslo. Was his radio show up and running at this point? Well, he did have, I think he had a local radio show in my hometown at the time. So we, we had already kind of reconnected because he liked some of the bands that I played in and we had been, you know, interviewed on the radio show. But the next meeting was in this club where he he then moved to Oslo and started coming playing at this club, you know, once a month or twice a month or something. Occasionally I would be warming up for him. I think even at this point, the guy who managed the club said, you're a lousy bartender, but a great DJ. So, you know, we'll instead of DJing from the bar, we'll put you in the DJ booth, which was a lot more exciting. Then I had to piece it all together once again, like with actual real equipment. And it was a few years after Strange Fruit showed me how I was supposed to do it. And I didn't really listen to him. You know, I, I still had my shitty rack turntables at home. <laughs> and what kind of things was Strange Fruit showing you in terms of the, I guess, the technical side of this is how you DJ? He wasn't showing me so much more. I would listen to him when he played and, you know, if there was something that I liked, he, you know, sometimes he would give me copies of it. I think most of these visiting DJs, thought I was really funny, you know, this weird guy in his local city town, like playing all these rubbish records. So they ended up giving me all the promos they received that they didn't want. So I was playing, you know, all the all the leftovers from the other DJs or, you know, sometimes they forgot records there or, you know, hey, a new record. And what, what kind of international DJs were passing through the club in those days? Well, if there was any international DJs, it would be pretty random. You know, probably somebody, if, if they were playing a big rave in Oslo or elsewhere in Norway, they would hang out with the, the local freaks and sometimes overstay, you know, like a couple of days and they would end up in this club. But there, there weren't any international DJs playing there. It was a, a local scene at the time. In Oslo, there, there were loads of things going on. I still... I lived in Hamad a few more years after that before eventually moving on to Oslo and, and discovering the bigger scene. And tell me what happened when you did move to Oslo full-time. For a period, I was put in touch with people like Bjorn Toske in, in Tromsø and also via DJ Strange Fruit, he would introduce me to the, to the scene in Oslo. And I mean, a lot of these people also came to to visit the, that club in Hamad, which was pretty lawless at the time. So I think, you know, these crazy guys from the city, you know, discovered they could go to this small inland town and we would have like crazy after parties in the club after it closed. And you could stay until the next day and all of a sudden the doors open again. And you know, it, was, it was a pretty small unknown scene. So we would get away with a lot of stuff. And just to confirm, that club that you first started playing at, that was in your the home? Yeah, in yep. Hamad. It Hamad. was club, yep. club scene. It. Yep. Yeah, and then, then I had all these offers to go to to Oslo, to Bergen, 
yeah, I think in the beginning it was basically Oslo and Bergen. And I would go there in the weekends. Actually, I, when I was 20, I became a father to Edward, who is 19 now. And, um, and I didn't live with his mother. So I was basically, I was uh, at home every other weekend taking care of him. And all these other weekends, I would travel somewhere to play and, you know, stay, take the first train home in the morning. But eventually my, um, my girlfriend, not, not the boy's father, she had a job offer in Oslo. This is where it was happening at the time. We decided to move to Oslo and then I could uh, commute to see my son. But yeah, I came to Oslo and met all these people in a very happening scene. Nothing like the town where I came from. And tell me about Oslo's club scene in the 90s. Oslo in the 90s was, uh, was crazy. Just tons of clubs and tons of DJs. At some point, I think we had... If you've ever been to Oslo, it's a pretty small town. Right now, there is maybe two record stores there. Uh, there used to be seven, eight, nine maybe 10, who would get imports coming in every every third day or something. And there, yeah, there was a lot of things going on, but mostly it was a, it was a night club scene. A lot of parties happening and uh, not so many producers, actually. But yeah, I got introduced to people, started playing more regularly and uh, started to actually make a living of doing this. And there was also a fairly interesting scene happening in Bergen at the time and maybe a bit of, was there a bit of rivalry between the, the sort of Bergen scene and the Oslo scene? Well, I think the, the rivalry has always been, at least from my point of view, it's been um, always had friends in Bergen and in Oslo. There's always been this thing about, you know, Oslo is the capital city and, you know, nothing individual is going on there and you know i think also the fact that in bergen there were a lot more producers people with you know who had something to say they weren't just like messengers <laughs> did at least give the the people in bergen a, an idea that they were better <laughs> and in oslo who who were the key djs that you are sort of playing alongside or learning from that's a minefield because I'm obviously going to forget somebody. <laughs> you had people uh, like DJ Andre, Kimotai, Paul Strangefruit, uh, Abstract. Yeah, there, there were DJ Geronimo. There were tons of DJs. Uh, Trulsen Robin. Uh, I'm releasing for the first time. And, you know, it's one of these guys that, you know, I knew from 20 years back almost. There were just a, a DJ-driven scene with l just loads of people. The whole scene kind of imploded after a few years because there were too many DJs and too many clubs and way too little interest from people. And, and it was... I think too focused on DJs and there weren't really anything else supporting that that wave, you know, there, there weren't producers doing much stuff or, yeah. Was it that implosion that 
prompted you to start getting into the studio and making music? Part of it, for me, it was actually, it, it, it was different. I mean, at some point, due to personal reasons and also the fact that I didn't enjoy it that much more was, you know, I was playing four, often five nights a week and barely making a living because the competition was fierce and, you know, at some point I decided I'm going to only do the gigs that matters to me, you know, the either the, the really fun ones or the ones that pays well, which meant that I, I, I had to get a day job. Uh, which was a blessing. This is, of course, many years later, and so I'm bypassing a lot of stuff now, but it's a blessing in disguise because after getting that day job and getting some kind of focus and getting the pressure on me to, you know, to get into production again because I had been dabbling in, in it before, that gave results pretty quickly with offers to go places and, and second birth of my DJ career. Okay, so what year was it when you, you took up the day job? Basically right before my international DJ career started. Uh, and, and how did having a full-time job, how did that benefit you in terms of production? Well, for all these years I was always talking about, well, one day... I'll put together a studio and, you know, do it. But there was never any room. I never had any energy to do it. Having that pressure on me, you know, spending all my day at, at work and coming home to the family, you know, feeding the kids, putting them to bed, then realizing the only way to get stuff done is staying up at night. So I did that for like almost a year without sleep <laughs> until we realized, you know, I. I don't need this day job anymore. And, you know, if I'm ever going to give this thing a chance, because I, I, I didn't really believe in, you know, having a career and making money from music because I'd just gone through all this travel and decided, you know, I'm not going to do it. But, of course, all these international gigs outpaid all the others I had had before and... At some point, I was turning down tour offers to to Japan because I didn't have any vacation left at work, you know. And staying in this job basically only gave me two nights of fees uh, a, a month. <laughs> so yeah, I, I gave it another chance, and and yeah, I'm I'm still around. You said that making a career out of DJing and, and making music wasn't something that you were aspiring to. What prompted you to, to decide, right, I'm leaving my day job and I'm gonna gonna do music full time? Well, this was my kind of my, my dream and what I told myself since I was a kid, you know, this is what I'm gonna do. And then reality told me differently, you know. No, you need to get a a fixed income. And, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of system around you, around you that, you know, so you know what's going on. That, that was basically the, what I realized. And then at some point my wife says, you have to remember this, this is your dream and you're now turning down these offers that outpace, 
your regular income easily. I think actually I I asked for a one year leave from the job, which I could. We had a baby at home, so it it was like I applied for a eternal leave or something. And in that in that period, I worked my ass off to you know get in touch with the international scene or and doing all these gigs and working hard at you know getting stuff out so it, it was basically my my wife saying you know give it another chance because i think this is different to to all this other stuff you've been doing before and were the international offers coming in as a result of your productions or was it because you'd built up a network through through your djing i'm actually i'm not sure exactly how it happened but I started to to do some remixes for people and and the whole thing happened quite quickly because I think no more than two months after I got my first ever computer, the first record was out and, you know, it sold out like this at Vinyl Junkies and started getting feedback from all these like DJ Harvey and Franz Kevorkian, like amazing records and I was like, I had no idea what I was doing but... So talk me through that first record. The first record, well, I, I can say one of the first records at least was the remix that I did for Lindstrom mu- Music in My Mind, I think it's called, which I think is his second release as Lindstrom. My brother-in-law had a firm and he said, you know, either I'll get some cleaners in to to clean out the, the offices, or you go do it. And if you do it, you can bring one of those computers back to your house. And I did that, got, got a friend to, to give me some cracked software, and I got one of these DOS up and working and basically started producing. <laughs> The, the record in question, the, the, the Lindstrom remix, I, I had no idea how to, to do these things. I've, I'd seen other people work on a computer before. I had experience in being in, in a proper studio with like a mixing desk and tape and stuff. And I had experiences with, you know, I used to do recordings on a four track tape machine. But um, the good thing is this door I was working with was Basically, it, it was like the, the visual uh, kind of was the same as I had expected it to be. And for me, it was like I had a four-track tape machine again, but more. I could play some instruments. I worked out how to kind of patch these things together to, to combine into something that sounded like almost like something that people could dance to. So, <laughs> And how did you first meet Lindstrom? I met um, through the Oslo club scene at, at Jacid Club. I can't remember what year now, but I guess around, probably like around 2000, maybe before. Yeah, he, 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 he were in the club when I was DJing. And I think he, at least that's what we always said in interviews that we bonded over me playing Wham in between some Deep pals and other things. And yeah, we, we 
kind of connected over various bits. I mean, he was a student at a time, just moved to Oslo, and he had always been playing in, in bands and stuff. But he was had recently gotten into electronic music production, and he released some records for this local label called Jacid Records, which was connected to the club. And then he decided to start his Lindstrom project, which is... Yeah, that no, that's actually after I met him. So, yeah, <laughs> it's many years ago. In terms of your, say, post-2000 music career, it seems to, it can be divided into three sections. There's the, the work with Lindstrom, there's your solo stuff, and then also your remixes. Yep. In terms of your collaboration with, with Lindstrom, how did that first begin? Our collaboration started with him asking me or maybe even me asking him to do a remix. I needed something to start with and it was easy. Getting all these cool parts for a track and trying to work out how to reorganize them. And the feedback for this thing was great and he was, you know, really enthusiastic. And we we started talking about maybe doing some sort of other collaboration. The original idea with with us was him basically him playing a lot of stuff, recording it, and then me kind of as a DJ coming in to produce it and arrange it. We realized that, you know, it was much more fun playing together. And even though he's an actual, he's a very good musician and I'm more like a self-taught punk, <laughs> you know, we, yeah, when we combined these things together, we, we came up with something that was different to what what he was doing or that I was doing. You know, he was already making his own music as Lindstrom and I had my DJ career and I had these plans for putting together a label. So we thought, you know, we'll, we'll do this project together. That's, you know, like a little side project, which would then be the Lindstrom and Prince Thomas thing. The initial reactions we got was, you know, the offers to release it different places, and and we were like, hey, it's easy, you know, it's it's a side project, and uh, we we weren't really prepared for the for the reactions we would get, and you know, we uh, it's probably still the best selling record we ever did even though I have no idea how many units we sold but the first Lindstrom and Prince Thomas record on Eskimo but for us it was easy to sign it away because you know it's it's not my main thing it's not your main thing you know it's I'll blame it on you you'll blame it on me but then yeah that's what kind of took us out into the international world and and, and what do you think it was about you two guys coming into the studio together that made the project so much different to what you're both doing individually? I'm not sure it was that different or anything, but at least we had this idea it was different. Any collaboration will be, you know. I can sit with a friend in the studio and my friend can sit there without touching a button and we'll collaborate on a track. I will be the first one to say this turned out differently just because you were in the studio with me, you know. So um, obviously, when when both uh, add something to the mix, you know, it's 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 going to be different. 
yeah, we we were there, you know, it was the right time and we were in the right place. I think there was this scene with, you know, like disco influences in house music that had been going on for a long time with Maurice Fulton and Harvey and Glenn Gunner and the Egypt Boys and, you know, this English, they hate it too, but the new disco scene, Face Action, all these guys. Um, but none of them really made it to the album format at the time and none of them had the, the backing to do like good promotion and so we were there at the right time with the right product you know and i guess the three albums that you put out with lindstrom between 2005 and 2009 kind of came right in that era of what people were calling the new disco scene and there was also the the kind of space disco tag as well that you you got lumped with yeah i mean with the first record i could probably say yeah it's a it's a space disco record <laughs> i've read before that you're not particularly fond of that term is that just because it, it, it's stuck longer than it should have well i don't like being called anything you know i i feel that you know i'm an individual and i have a lot of different inspirations and things that I like. I like to be free to be able to play Robert Hood and Jimi Hendrix in the same DJ set. And if I play two of those, I mean, if still people still have the impression that it's space disco, then, you know, it's, then it's fine. This thing that people call space disco, new disco, Normally when, when I hear something labeled like that, when I listen to it, it's, it's usually rubbish. So, <laughs> but I mean, with, with the first record, you know, we, we didn't really plan on anything. We just made a record. And then it turned out to be like this shifting point where around the time, you know, the, the, the main room club music was starting to slow down a little bit and you know, for a few years, the back rooms and the main rooms were kind of like reconnecting. But I think due to the whole disco revival that started bubbling up, which I have no idea if it's still going on or maybe it, is it a big thing now? I don't really know. These things come in waves, don't they? Yeah, they, they do. But then uh, our idea was to not repeat that and, you know, let's... Let's just start with the tabula rasa and, yeah, start with clean sheets and do something completely new. Let's think we're two other people and let's start making a new record from scratch. And that became the second record, which wasn't that well received, though, in my opinion, it's still a much better record. But it was probably deep down inside, it was an attempt at not being lumped into the disco thing. So what was it like being at the center of of this kind of new disco era? I mean, first of all, it was good because I, I've had loads of offers to go play everywhere. For me, it was a chance of showing, hey, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually not, you know, just a guy who can lean back on the stuff that I produce, but I'm actually, I've, I've been a DJ for ages and I'm a good one. So... It was a lot of good gigs and a lot of frustrating gigs, especially those where people discovered I didn't only play the stuff that I 
produce. You know, it's not like you can prepare for a party I'm playing by listening to that first record I did with Lindstrom. I'm I'm not going to play that in a nightclub situation, but I play a lot of other things. That's always kind of it's it's. Um, I've never really thought that you know my production has to be connected to what I'm doing as a DJ. You know that um, I I like many different things. <laughs> it felt like the the third Prince Thomas and Lindstrom album in two thousand nine signal maybe the end of that era of collaboration with and you started to focus more on your solo career. Is that right? Did it get to a point where you just wanted to have full control in the studio? The thing is, already when we started traveling together, we both realized this is actually taking way more of our time than we planned it to be. You For know? what was a, a side project? Yeah, it it was a side project, and was kind of it was overshadowing Lindstrom stuff, and he basically had this plan for you know his his biggest record to date is probably still I Feel Space which came out in the middle of all this. I got more and more confidence as well, especially kind of like by taking charge of things on the second album and, yeah, coming out of my shell. <laughs> That's around the same time that I started working on what would become my first record. And the actual the, the third record we did for Eskimo is... It's really, it's it's actually all the 12-inch stuff that we made along with the first and second album compiled on a CD. And you mentioned coming out of your shell a bit in the, in the studio with, with Lindstrom. Was that just because you were having more time to kind of perfect the, the different techniques in the studio? Well, I, no, I never really perfected any techniques, but I think for the first time ever, I, you know... I, as I've always been in bands, I always made music. I, I wrote music. I wrote shitty lyrics when I was 15. All of a sudden, I was in a situation where I had the time and uh, equipment. I had people who listened, you know. I had people buying music with my name on it. And I had all these other ideas that I, uh, yeah, that I wanted to try to put down on, on wax. So... Realizing we we you know we should tone down whatever we was doing together, and I think we we kind of felt we had said what we had to say at the time with uh, already by the second album. I mean, we still we still have a contract with Eskimo for a, another album, and for three four years now we've been talking about you know trying to find a time to do something, but it was never about that. You know, it it was about you know hey want to try to make a new track you know now it's all more complicated with you know all these long-term projects that gets in the way from when you start and you have a clean slate you know and and now where things are planned a lot further ahead you know i mean right now it's like i'm looking at yeah the studio schedule of april may did it feel like your first solo album marked the beginning of a, a new era well, maybe, maybe. Of course, anyone's solo debut album marks something, but um, I don't really know. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it, for me it still feels like one long era with, you know, different 
you know, it's a little bit up, a little bit down. You know, it's very dynamic, and that's uh, that's how it should be. I, I guess yeah. a lot of a lot of people who've been following your music in terms of your remixes, your twelve inches, and your collaborations felt that the solo album was long overdue. But did yeah. you see it that way? No, not really. I mean, I, I if you look at all the other stuff I did in the meantime, you know, at least you can see that I was busy doing something. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't really think of, if, I mean, are there people out there that have opinions about me actually doing an album? That's amazing, you know? <laughs> but going back a little bit, before you started Full Pup, you, you ran a fairly short-lived label called Tambourine. Yeah. Uh, tell me how that came to be i had a residency in oslo at the club called blow where i still have a well that's where we have the full pop night which has been going on for eight years now but i think that yeah the club started 15 or 16 years ago and i've kind of been had some sort of residency there most of the time since they opened but before starting Full Pup, one of the managers of the club uh, proposed to me that I should get in touch with one of these guys they shared an office with because he knew he could apply for some money to start a label. They were setting up their own jazz label for the nightclub. Maybe I could do like a little offshoot, uh, releasing all this great stuff that, that friends gave me on CDs and, you know. So that was the idea, you know, we, I got this guy to apply for money and we received uh, 10,000 pounds like that. Hey, release a record. So we did, we released four of them, I think, a seven inch and three 12 inches, but we did absolutely everything wrong. You know, we, we didn't promote the releases. We pressed them on 180 grams vinyl. We shipped the records to Norway first, which is fairly expensive, and you pay the VAT. And then you have to ship them out to Norway, which is probably the highest postage in the whole world. So we actually had to sell them with, with a loss. So that £10,000 uh, came in handy. At some point, we were out of money and almost out of records and we decided, you know, we can't do it this way. <laughs> if nothing else, it sounds like a great learning experience. Yeah, yeah. So what you learned there, did you take that into starting Full Pup? That's all the stuff that I didn't bring with me into Full Pup. <laughs> what happened was I gave some records to the Idiot Boys who I already met yeah, close to 20 years ago. I gave some copies to them and they passed some on to this guy, Stevie Colty, who ran the Bear Funk label at the time. I guess he still does. Anyway, he offered me to help out set up a sort of a sub-label of Bear Funk. So I had to come up with name and full pup what was it. That's, that's kind of how we started. Was the idea from day one to focus on Norwegian talent? Yeah, that was my main intention because I was seeing a lot of friends of mine, you know, sending their demos overseas and, you know, 
none really earning much except having that record out by by doing it you know very often the the credibility comes back to the label not necessarily not necessarily the artist my idea was to build sort of a base for Norwegian stuff that I found exciting and outlet for all these ideas that I was enthusiastic about and um, if you need to have a selling point you know that that's an easy one yeah it's locals only you know that that was the idea but of course on the way uh, I started receiving all these demos from other people and at some point I realized it's it's stupid turning down these amazing records from Japan and New York because I'm only releasing Norwegian stuff so that's where the whole enterprise started <laughs> uh, I mean in the, in the meantime also I stopped the relationship with Stevie and started the label again as a partnership with Word and Sound in Germany then we started international and now with all these other sub labels I'm I'm not sure even all of them are announced yet but there's you know, in terms of the, the full pup side of things, you said in previous interviews that the Norwegian scene flourished because it was so isolated from other established scenes. Yep. Um, can you ex- expand on that for me? Yeah, I mean, right now, I think, you know, the, the scene looks very healthy and, you know, it, it might even sound like, you know, uh, it, it's a scene that could have blossomed everywhere. But um, I think Norway never had an industry around dance music, electronic music. And it's been pretty small. And, you know, if you're a part of the scene in Norway, you're influencing. You, you know, everybody knows each other. And I think the, the fact that Strange Fruit had this radio show playing all these pretty eclectic mix of things inspired a lot of people you know, young people sitting at home listening to music or you know and the show you're referring to is strange fruits uh, national shows is that right yeah his his national radio show it mm. seems to have been hugely influential for like a whole generation of norwegian artists i mean especially for those in the beginning of the 30s now you know they they would be you know just too young to go out to clubs so it would be where they would be able to check out this music on a weekly basis but i think it's you know it's it's not just the in influence from strange fruit but also the fact that we we never had you know these like specialized crowds the crowds in norway aren't really that interested in what you're doing as long as they can dance to it as long as the, they can get stuff fairly quick in the bar and if they can get drunk and if they're able to dance to it, they're happy. So the the focus on DJing Norway has always been this, you know, you got to entertain all of them, not just, you know, that little cool gang of guys with their hands in the pockets, you know, the, the people who know. You got to prepare for any situation. That's at least my school of DJing. You know, you have some salsa and some Rolling Stones and some Mr. Fingers. And that's what you need to do to keep it interesting. So all these various influences, um, you know, kind of helped shape all these 
adventurous influences in Todd Terry's music and, you know, in, yeah, you can hear it anywhere, I think. I think maybe your your breadth of DJing or in terms of your taste was has been um, demonstrated this year with the two mixes you've released. The first one was the, the 10 years of full pop. Yep. The press materials for that album mentioned that you had selected, edited and mixed everything that went on that. Can you tell me about that process? I find it probably the most difficult thing is to to kind of rate your own work or, you know, be critical to yourself. And obviously then putting together compilation of stuff that I released and then also, you know, selecting it and mixing it myself. It's actually a bit uh, weird. <laughs> but I was actually, I was very positively surprised all the all the different stuff that we had put out so it was basically just i spent a day finding copies of all the stuff that i would put on there which means exclude all the stuff that was on the last compilation try to pick as much of the new stuff as possible pressing record and you know having an idea about the first three records that i wanted to put on the mix and then I kind of recorded the whole thing live from vinyl. And then when I was done, it was a little bit too long for a double mix CD. So I took the whole thing to the studio, uh, started overdubbing some stuff here and there, doing edits, put on some effects, you know, yeah. So you approached it very much like you would approach a, an actual DJ gig. You, you had a couple of records planned for the start and then you just went with the flow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except that I had no crowd. It was raining outside. Not the best situation to, to rock the dance floor with, but... The, the other mix you put out this year was the first instalment in Rainbow Disco Club, the Tokyo Festival's uh, mix series. The track list for that one, you've, you've got names like Shed, Surgeon, Silent Servant, Donato Dozzi. It was very different to the, the full pop mix. Yep. What was the aim behind that? Was it to showcase the kind of stuff you would play at that festival? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I didn't bring on there, but I, you know, the idea was just to to kind of make an exciting mix that, I mean, I had this idea of doing something that's a little bit more special than just, you know, how, how to get people to buy a mix CD these days. I just had this idea of doing quicker mixes and, cramming more stuff in there and making it more like a, a very dynamic and organic mix than I would necessarily in, in a nightclub because usually I do let the records play longer and let them do the work for me. But with 79 minutes to cram things in, you know, either you, you'll play 10 records or you'll try to fit in 40, <laughs> which I did. So... Let's see about the next mix CD, what I'll do there. You know, I, I don't know. And this year, in addition to the, the two commercially released mixes, you've also put out your own album, your third album. Yep. You called it a musical diary. Can you, can you tell me what that means? Sounds so much worse when you send it back to me. Musical diary. Ooh. Um, the idea was basically just to jam and have fun when you're in the studio. It's the stuff that I've done in the studio that maybe some people wouldn't even have recorded, you know? It's just 
recordings of me going into the studio and doing something. I think with the first album, I did have an idea of all the things I wanted the, the album to contain, like, you know, it, emotions or, you know, I feel like it needs one of these kind of tracks. But with the first one, I was, my limitation was that I wasn't that experienced in the studio. I didn't have that much equipment and I, I was also working under my own dogma rules at the time where I didn't want to use drum machines and I, I basically sampled myself doing stuff instead. So then on the next record, on, on the second album, I, you know, I decided I had to learn MIDI properly. I had to kind of, yeah, that was just documentation of me uh, <laughs> learning MIDI. <laughs> so with the third one, it's these things kind of coming together and me being, you know, knowing a little bit more how to operate all these things in the studio. And then instead of spending too much time on the technical stuff, just spending more time having fun. Do you feel that's when you produce your, your best results is when you're just focusing on jamming and having fun rather than the technical side? Last night uh, I spoke with a friend who listened to an unreleased remix that I'm working on, a new Brian Ferry single. And he said, why, why doesn't your own stuff sound as good as your remixes? It's, it's they're always so emotional. They're like, you're making like this, like really good records when you remix, but your own stuff is like so-so. And I, I guess it's, it's, it's partially true. Like, you know, it's doing remixes. It's, it's a different thing, you know, it's like having very often having good ingredients and, you know, it's just a way of combining them or preparing them. Well, making your own music is, is going to the, to the supermarket on a budget. <laughs> they might have a lot of stuff that's not in season. <laughs> I said before that there were sort of felt, felt like there were three parts to your musical identity, the, the Lindstrom collaborations, the solo work and the remixes. So in terms of the, the remixes, I guess a lot of people, especially DJs, know you for the, the Prince Thomas disco mix. Yep. Um, and you've kind of started to elaborate on, on it there in terms of the extra freedom or the, the kind of the head start you get when you are doing a remix. Is it something that you've enjoyed doing down the years? No, I finally love it. You know, it used to be a lot of hard work for very little money. Now it's actually a good portion of my income comes from doing it. And, you know, when you do sim something for a long time, you know, when, when you have experience doing something, then, you know, you get more comfortable with it. And with with remixes now, I you know, I don't have to prove anything. You know, it's like um, they, they come very easily for me. Just the fact that you're you're having this head start by already knowing alternative A, this is how it actually sounds like. Make it sound different or do do something fun with it. It's, it often does sound like you are having quite a lot of fun when you do remixes. Do you feel a bit more freedom there? Actually, no. <laughs> it's I, I, for me. It's uh, you know, it's the same organic process. But I think it's more with the remixes. Maybe it's more like. I'll show you what you could do with this. 
and also the fact that doing remixes, you're a little bit more under pressure to get something done quickly, which saves you a lot of stupid ideas, which tend to pop up when you work on something for too long. And I mean, I'm, I'm not known for spending too much time on perfecting anything, you know, but with my own material, it, it might mutate into something completely different than what it started as. And it might only make sense to me, but, you know, I'm, um, I don't try to judge my ideas at all. You know, if it's something I can listen to and keeps my interest in it throughout the track, then, hey, let's put it out. There must be some fools out there buying this. <laughs> you, you mentioned in past interviews that you, you felt there was one point in your career where you were putting out too many remixes. Do you, do you feel like you've addressed that or do you, do you not, have you kind of changed that opinion now? Well, I think at least maybe in the beginning I was agreeing to everything. I had this idea that you... You know, this this is my chance of, of showing people, you know. I might not get more remix offers after this, you know. So you always had to... Yeah, I mean, it's it's like my whole artistical career is, is my, you know, has been given a second chance. So I'm wary of, you know, this is my train, get on it. I I had to. And, and but, you know, it's... Uh, I don't do, or maybe I actually do more remixes now than I ever did, for all I know. I have no idea. But at least I don't see... There was a time when there were four new things coming out every week. You know, always a coincidence. Something together with Lindstrom, a solo thing, and another thing on my label. But now there's so much stuff out there, so you, you need to put out that many records to have people at least notice one of those ten, you know? <laughs> You actually started a another sub-label of Full Pup this year called yep. Ret I Fletcher. Ret I Fletcher. From the, the the sound clips for the the first uh, record, it had some clips on it that said um, "Music for Neanderthals." Another one was a uh, techno spelt with a K. So it seems like it was a bit a bit of a lighthearted affair in terms of how you're promoting that. Um, is that that label going to be focused on on more kind of techno-y sounds? Maybe not techno as in techno, but maybe m more my idea of what what could fit in that mold. I I don't really know. You know, I it's the it's the techno side label to full pop. What's techno to you? It's a feeling. <laughs> no, I I don't know. I mean, there's I already put out some stuff on there that I know it. Uh, Nine out of ten people said, no, this is not techno. But, hey, it's techno to me. It's my label. I decide. But, yeah, it's it's going to be the home of some freedom. Maybe a different sort of freedom than I allow myself and others on full pop. I don't really have a a set of rules for any of the labels, but, uh, I mean, it has to feel right and that's sometimes it's got to do with timing, you know, what was the last record we released or, you know, should I put it out on this label or that label? And some some records I'm getting, you know, 
some of the music sounds like it should be on my new side label, which is about to launch called Horizontal Mambo, which is more like experimental listening music or, you know, not necessarily for the club DJs, but then again, maybe something for adventurous DJs. How how do you go about sort of juggling all, all of this now? You've, you know, you mentioned you've got another sub-label launching, top of the one that already started this year, plus international, plus full pop. It must be a bit of a juggling exercise to just to decide what's going where. Well, compared to having three kids the age of 19, 10 and 15 months, it's nothing. You know, it's, it's easy, the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's, as long as it makes sense to me and at, as long as there is enough people out there interested in it. You know, I've, I've, for me, this is the same as I used to draw when I was a kid. And, you know, I, I still get the same feeling if I sit down and draw me, draw with my, the, my baby girl. Uh, that you're... And music is kind of, it's my... I don't know, it's my chosen way of communicating whatever I do or, you know, it's, um, it's, it's almost to the point where I think of my, my A&Ring as, you know, it's the same as when I'm making music, you know, you're picking bits that excites you and hopefully they're still as exciting to you when they're finally released or, you know, um, but it's the, the, the whole the physical thing is is important to me that it's an actual record it's something that you know it costs that amount of money it it takes that long to produce and get it right and you spend all that time mastering and sometimes like recutting the record or make it sound as good as it possibly can and feel like something worth your money and your and the space in your apartment and, you know, there's a lot of media coverage about a, a resurgence in vinyl and people buying more records. Have you felt that as a label boss? Or no, do, you, do you worry no, about that? No, I'm, I mean, I don't worry about anything. I don't even worry about a day where there is no vinyl to produce anymore. Then, you know, I'll find something else to focus on. For sure, the labels isn't, are not going to keep on rolling as a digital-only thing. The main thing is now more people might buy records but there's plenty more labels to choose from so there's just more of us splitting people's pocket money between us you know do you still get excited when you sort of hear of a a new up-and-coming norwegian producer and think oh i can showcase him or her on on full pop as much as you did 10 years ago when the label started I do, but that, I never really think of it that way. It's, um, I mean, there's there's plenty of stuff that I do get in my hands and get a chance to release that I don't because the, the either the music's not right or even sometimes there's people with high expectations that I say, you know, we're not right for you. You should go somewhere else. This You're trying to aim at a market where... I'm not a player, you know, go straight to Warner, <laughs> you know. But I I do find stuff from people that I haven't heard of before or heard music from before that excites me as much as 
anything I ever put out, you know, it's, yeah, I'm still finding stuff and that's why I keep on doing all these labels. How often are the, the full pup nights in, in Oslo these days? It's once a month. And, and how do you find those parties and the Oslo scene in general now compared to, you know, the 90s? Well, the, the scene is quite different to anything really. Like it's, it's a pretty small town with very few clubs, but the few ones that are still rolling or, you know, new clubs in Oslo, they're, they have the right focus. It's, they have pretty decent sound system, most of them. There's this good combination of promoters and clubs being behind the local talent as well as bringing in exciting names internationally, you know. Whereas in the 90s, it was more about people, you know, claiming their throne, you know. Uh, all these, the same people, like, kind of fighting over the same gigs. I mean, although I had to say, in general, the music was a bit more exciting to me the music other DJs played were more exciting to me in the 90s than it is now. It all seems a bit more specialized now. and uh, But that's them. <laughs> and you mentioned now having, you know, a wife and kids. How do you go about juggling your, your personal life with the rigors of touring and also getting time in the studio? Well, it's actually not that difficult. I mean, I've, I've been a father since since I started DJing in nightclubs. So my kids uh, always had a dad who were gone to sometimes three, sometimes four weekends a month or, you know, a couple of times a year I'm gone for a week and then I'll be back again. The fact that I'm quite effective and very productive when I'm in the studio also means that I, I can easily take two weeks off, be there with my kids more than most other parents. You know, I, I don't have to wait and punch out till five o'clock. You know, I'll, I'll pick my kids up early from, from kindergarten and meet my son at school and we spend a day together. Uh, so, yeah, I'm actually, like, I'm, I'm a homekeeper and a professional DJ. <laughs> and how inclusive are you in terms of bringing your family into, say, this musical side and the DJing side of your of your life. I know you you mentioned that your, your mum's coming to your gig in London this weekend. Yeah, uh, I mean, um, my, my big family is obviously they're, they're very happy that I'm, you know, finally this thing paid off, you know. So they've, they've been happy the last 10 years with, with me, you know, delivering what I promised when I was a kid and decided to quit school before graduating or anything. Yeah, my, my kids are aware of it. You know, it's sometimes, you know, I, my 10-year-old my son is now at the point where his other friends thinks I have a really cool job. You know, in a few years from now, it's going to be really uncool. You know, when he's 17 and realizes, you know, nothing your dad does is cool, you know. My 19-year-old is back to, this is actually quite cool again. For his 13th birthday, he, I took him along to Croatia, Croatia to some nightclub there. When he was 14, I took him along with me to Amsterdam dance event and we had a night off backstage at the Innovisions party and he was, you know, he was the coolest guy there, 
you know. And occasionally we'll we'll take a little family holiday in you know Italy in the summer, book in and buy a couple of gigs. So yeah, I include them as much as possible. You know, I'd, I love to be able to take take a tour bus traveling through you know all parts of the world with them with me. You know, that would have made all the um, all the moments. Not in the in the nightclub, a little less lonely, you know. Discotance. 